Today, we are looking at the competitive nature of the creative arts. You betcha. You don't think directors and producers and artists and musicians compete. They do. Today, we look at such luminaries as Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, James Cameron, John Byrne, Howard Chaikin, all of them, comics, movies, the Eagles, music, everybody, everybody has got a stake in their success and what it means. And they're not afraid to address it. We have some absolute crazy uh, statements and commentary to share with you as we open the door to this uh, creator controversies, creator toxicity that we are going to take on headfirst and discuss today on an all new Observations. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. I of the producing, writing, creating, drawing, inking, manufacturing comic books for the last 37 years. I have seen my way through comic books. I know my way around the comic book industry. This podcast is a product of me wanting to talk about comics, the behind the scenes uh, creators who are really the special, the special ones that have made the stories that have made the character so important to all of us. The writers and and artists and and writer artists, the creators who have crafted unbelievable epic stories of Daredevil and Spider-Man and the X-Men and Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and Green Lantern that have moved us deeply. I, I shared early on in my podcast how it was in 1980, 1981, when I, I was so deeply moved by the death of two uh, important characters, fan favorite characters, really popular characters, the kind of uh, moves that you would not anticipate a major publisher to do with their major characters in their major books. It's the kind of stuff that took us all by surprise when Game of Thrones landed uh, a decade back, 10 years ago. And so much of the key members of the cast were either damaged and or killed. I mean, they used... Sean Bean to sell the show. He was the poster, you know, and uh, if you have not seen uh, Game of Thrones before I go any further at, I'm not even at the two minute mark. I am, I am telling you, you should stop this and not move any forward, any further. I don't want to spoil things. I feel like 10 years is an okay window to discuss stuff, but Sean Bean, you know, meets his demise uh, in, in the first season of Game of Thrones. And you're like, What's going on here? He was the lead. He was the star. He was the charisma. He was the driving force. I mean, the entire narrative was really resting on his actions, his investigation. So what happened in the X-Men and Daredevil with characters named Elektra and Phoenix, Jean Grey, I mean, one of the original X-Men, it just just blew me away. I absolutely fought back tears with the manner with which Electra was murdered. She was murdered. Jean Grey was a different thing. It was it was a shock. But again, kudos to those creators for moving, not just me, but a, a generation of readers. We share that. We share where we were at what time. I was in the back of the car in my mom's Ford as she was in the Buena Park Mall 
doing shopping. She had taken me to the comic store. I was able to sit in the parking lot and just read my stash of comic books. And you guys, I'll never forget that because it was like, wait, what? Electra had achieved a level of, of Wolverine-esque popularity. And the fact that now she was gone. And how would I know that that was just the beginning of another exciting chapter? But I was so like, wait, what? Electra had transformed the, uh, the comic book. It was the first character that Frank Miller introduced as he took over the book as the writer and the artist. So it was a big deal. If you can do that to someone with a song, with a novel, with a comic book, with a movie, with a show, then, you know, you've really, you've really exercised tremendous influence on that individual or individuals or the masses in this case, right? So this podcast exists to put all of this into focus that these characters didn't care about Daredevil nearly the way that I did after Frank Miller touched him or the X-Men after John Byrne and Terry Austin and Paul Smith and so many other important figures touched those characters. I, I, I've told you I didn't care for Batman until Frank Miller. Frank Miller's a huge figure in the comics industry. There are gentlemen, as I've discussed here recently, Howard Chaikin, whose career was, you know, right on the cusp of being a journeyman career, despite doing the Star Wars adaptation. But he turned it around. He, he came back on the scene with a masterpiece called American Flag and changed the way everyone looked at him, his work, and his contributions, and it affected his, his legacy forevermore. Today, we're not just going to look at comic creators. We're going to look at directors because they give us so much of what we love. And this is definitely a part one. And because it's, it's interesting, there is, I believe, an acknowledgement in everyone that the comics and the movies and the art that we consume happens on some sort of competitive landscape, in some competitive landscape, within a competitive arena on the competitive landscape. But the thing is, uh, you know, if, if you were fortunate enough to watch the offer on Paramount Plus, uh, they, they did a really excellent uh, I think eight, nine episode uh, retelling of the behind the scenes story to getting the Godfather made. So much of what was going on behind the scenes of the Godfather was known to the public when a book by Peter Biskind came out called Easy Riders Raging Bulls. I've mentioned this book before. It is the sauciest, most uh, exciting, riveting, most researched, interviewed book about the rise of the new age of, of filmmaking that started with the auteurs, the, the Coppolas, the Scorseses, the Spielbergs taking power, and then transferred to the blockbuster age of producers like Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson and even Spielberg himself who became a blockbuster producer, Kathleen Kennedy. The, the age of the you know mega producer eclipsed the auteurs because the auteurs... Uh, had no, had 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 very little to no uh, room to slip up because the studios were desperately wanting them to slip up. They wanted things to go back to the way they were. And the minute that a couple of them lodged a couple of misfires, they immediately said, "Thank you, we'll take over. We'll take over." And uh, Alan Moore, famously, Alan Moore of Watchmen and Swamp Thing and Supreme and V for Vendetta, he shared with me in the early '90s. He said, "Rob." When I, when, I, when I was doing Swamp Thing, 
and, and, and it's absolutely uh, sounds very much like Alan Moore. I'm doing a very, very inspired Alan Moore for all of you right now. Rob, when I was in the middle of doing Swamp Thing, as you know, Swamp Thing had not uh, had not been doing or performing very well sales-wise. And then after my uh, brief tenure on the book for just a few issues, they, they began to come at me with ideas that they wanted me to implement. And it was as if, thank you for driving this car and getting it back up and running, but please could you go sit in the back seat? We're going to resume driving it. And I was like, that is the greatest, uh, you know, I mean, that, that is the, the, the greatest example that I had heard of, thanks, thanks for uh, getting this car up and running. Thanks for teaching us how to drive it on the track. And now just, why don't you either get out or just get in the back. We'll take over from here. We'll take over from here. You're going to get some of that today as we uh, examine not just comic creators, but producers, writers, directors who either were at odds or competitive with each other, uh, the studios, but in the arena of the offer, when I, when I mentioned the landscape, the, 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 the competitive arena, the competitive landscape, look, the, the thing that they try to beat over the head to the money men again and again and again, Bob Evans, who was running the Paramount Studios at the time, what did he use? This is a bestseller, this is a bestseller, this is a bestseller. What does that mean? It sold, it outsold everything else. Godfather deserves to be the movie that we want it to be. That It deserves the budget that we have a set aside for it and maybe a little more. And, and maybe a little more, uh, you know, consideration across the board because it's a bestseller. It outsold everything else. Well, outselling means that you were at the top, that you outperformed everyone else, that you were the book that everybody had to have. And maybe along the way, there were some other books that got knocked off. There were certainly other movies that got knocked off when, 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 when Godfather was released in theaters. You hear today, release windows are incredibly important to the studios. And they watch when somebody moves a movie, immediately a studio moves on to that date because they're like, wow, that date has been vacated. That was already a super competitive date. I could now use this to get either a two-week earlier jump or I can use this to get uh, to, to advance, you know, my own purposes, less competition. The ability to outperform your fellow artist is just like sports. It is just like sports, okay? I inhale, I digest an incredible amount of sports, podcast, talk radio, television, because I love seeing everybody attempt to dunk on each other. And they do. They always attempt to dunk on each other. And I have always told you that I find it very uh, reminiscent of, 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 of my time in comics. I, I, some, some of the stuff that I have experienced in sports, I believe, is like comic books. Everybody has uh, a fan base. As, as I've said, I, I, I was on the fifth row uh, right behind the 76ers team sitting next to the president of the Philadelphia 76ers. I was given um, my tickets by, you know, Mr. Mr. Slap Happy himself, Will Smith, because I was doing a deal with Will Smith in 2001, called me up, said, hey, I'm going to be on the floor. Do you want these tickets? I came. I sat behind the Sixers, handed the Lakers their only loss of the 2001 playoffs. The only one. They had been undefeated. They wiped everybody out in the first round, the second round, the third round. Four and out, four and out, four and out. Kind of probably had a little more hubris than they could possibly 
afford to have going up against a team as talented as Allen Iverson and that Sixer squad? The Kambi Matambo. The Kambi Matambo. I mean, they, they, they were a good time. Uh, uh, they were a, a really good squad. And in overtime, Allen Iverson handed the Lakers their first loss in the opening game of the NBA Finals. And I turned to the president of the 76ers and said, you, you've got a hell of a team there. I was seething. I was angry. I was embarrassed. I was furious. I didn't have another ticket to the finals that year. Um, you know, there was no guarantee. There's one more game. Then the, then the game goes, then, then the, the whole series shifted to Philly, which is where the Lakers won. But I, I was, you know, furious. And I looked down and the guy who had given me my tickets was celebrating with his manager, with his friends, Mr. Will Smith was a huge Sixers fan, and he was having the best night he could possibly have in Staples. And it was, you know, it wasn't lost on me that I got my tickets from him. So, you know, there were there were more games to win, but I was like, wow, the Sixers were were seen as the David to the Lakers Goliath for sure. And Goliath in this instant prevailed, and LA fans like myself were thrilled. But, you know, when you are next to a competitor and and that competitor wants it just as bad as you do and you hold on for dear life in the NFL just a couple weeks in right now a lot of second half gains are wiped out because the challenger comes out with a renewed energy a renewed uh you know passion to to not be embarrassed to not be humiliated and to compete harder and so these games are coming down to the wire even 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 closer than they have ever had before. And, and whether it's Vegas and the bookies and the numbers and whatever, it, every data, you know, platform will, will tell you that the, these, these giant gaps are getting erased like, like never before in the second half of games thus far early on as we enter into this third week of NFL play. I believe that in the arts, they're competing just as, just as hard as Allen Iverson against the Lakers, just as hard as, you know, the the uh, just as hard as the Atlanta Falcons against the Rams. Everybody wants to get that W, and by getting that, you need a very clear win in the win column. That is done by achievement in terms of box office. Are we not? Have we forgotten that a man that is repeatedly bet against, uh, repeatedly bet against, is Mr. James Cameron? He of Terminator. Aliens, Terminator 2, True Lies, The Abyss, Titanic, Avatar. Everybody's always betting against this guy. I do not know why, other than I think he just rubs people the wrong way. And in that, I understand. I think I have rubbed people the wrong way myself. That is my little sidebar that I'm going to inject about myself. You're your you're, you're host of this show. But uh, Cameron shook his hands upon receiving all of those Academy Awards and said, I'm the king of the world. And that was him dunking on everyone, dunking on everyone, all other creatives, everyone else who was rolling camera that year, who was who had their script in contention, their cinematography in contention, their special effects in contention, their best picture in contention. He did not hesitate to dunk. I have shared with all of you, and I, I love telling this to my friends who did not live here at the time, the two major trades, and, and, and the trade magazines came out, Monday through Saturday. There was a weekend edition, so it was Monday through Friday plus the weekend edition. And in those trade magazines, for the two months prior to the Titanic opening in 1997,
because it had moved from a summer movie to a Christmas movie. The trade magazines had a graphic of an iceberg. And then they had a small little drawing of the Titanic. And every day they would move it closer to the, the iceberg. And they'd say 40 days until Titanic releases. 39 days, 20 days, 20 days, 15 days, 12 days, 7 days. And the idea, because it was everywhere, and I can tell you, I have told this story in uh, my podcast. It's a first-year podcast. It is, uh, it has got Will Smith and the Mark. It talks about the 24 hours that I went to all the studio heads. It, starting early in the morning, we visited the president of Disney, the president of Universal, the Steven Spielberg's house in the Palisades as the president of DreamWorks. We visited Sony, Fox. Fox was our last meeting of the day. And the head of production, the president of Fox, was a man named Bill Mechanic. And Bill Mechanic, we had to go to his beach house way deep into Malibu. We went and sat outside on the back deck. Will Smith, his partner James Lasser, and myself uh, sat in the sun as Bill Mechanic sat in the shade. And we pitched him our sci-fi movie based on my screenplay, The Mark. But the small talk prior to that and the small talk that wrapped it up was squarely on Titanic. This is, if I didn't mention this, this is Halloween. This is Halloween of 1997. Early morning, Saturday, and uh, it was just nonstop all day long. From the Palisades to Malibu, uh, Culver City, Beverly Hills. We we started and, and just mixed it up and drove everywhere. But Bill Mechanic literally was sweating. I mean, thick with sweat. Kept dabbing his... And he said, I'm, I'm just... I, I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry, guys. I just... Uh, we, 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 we've had some test screenings and I'm I'm really nervous about Titanic. We got a lot on the line. We got we got so much on the line. I'm really, I'm really nervous. And uh, it was a point of tremendous anxiety for him. It was all over his face. He still had two solid months, all of November and most of December, moving up to Christmas until Titanic came out. And the word of mouth in the movie was terrible. It was over budget. Who was going to go see a movie about a story that we all knew the ending to? Because Titanic was something taught in history classes. We all know it hit the iceberg. We all know what a rich, you know, construction uh, uh, boat that it was. And it sank. It sank. And, and there were not a whole lot of survivors and... The whole thing was part of history. So what was Cameron going to do to set it apart? People were rooting for his demise. They were openly rooting for James Cameron's demise. This movie's going to flop. Oh boy, this movie's going to flop. Other studios got even courageous enough to slot their movie, move them up. Uh, We think Titanic doesn't have what it takes. We don't think Titanic has the legs. Titanic played for two months in the number one slot. It went on to become the biggest movie of all time, eclipsing Star Wars, eclipsing E.T., the two movies that had been battling out for the number one spot for all those years. You don't think it matters to creatives? One of my favorite documentaries of all time, featuring my favorite band of all time, is The Eagles. You go, oh, life, not The Eagles. Yes, The Eagles. Don Henley has one of the best voices in the history of rock and roll. Those, those jams, those tunes, they are eternal uh, I have never, ever stopped listening to them upon hearing them for the first time in 1976, 77, 78, 79, all the way up until they broke up in 1980. Their greatest hits album was the number one album until Thriller came out. And then literally for the last 25, 30, 
almost 40 years, they battle it out for chart domination. When Michael Jackson died, for instance, it, Michael Jackson's thriller eclipsed and went back up on top, beating the Eagles, who had reasserted their dominance. And why am I telling this? In the documentary, one of my favorite documentaries, Showtime did it a couple years ago. It is fantastic. It's two part. It's the history of the Eagles. The manager of the uh, the the Eagles, his name is Irving Azov. Okay, um, he wants you to know. He wants you to know that they are in fact still the biggest uh, biggest selling album of all time. And he makes a point of telling you that they had just regained that status while they were recording this so that when it showed that you would know that the band that you were watching, the documentary, a bunch of a bunch of really very uh, dynamic musicians. I mean, and they, and they, they, they had their, they had their chemistry issues. I mean, they, they, they broke up for a reason. There was some, some, some hotter to the collar issues that separated them for 14 years. Okay. I had the fifth row to their opening night return that happened at the Pacific Amphitheater in Irvine. And the place went crazy. People loved the Eagles. But it, for, for most of the, the 80s, the mid-80s, they took a number two as Thriller just kept picking up those sales. But in that documentary that aired in 2011, 2012, Irving Azoff looks right into the camera and says, uh, the, the biggest selling you know, album of all time, the number one selling band of all time, as a matter of fact, just reasserted at number one as the, the best selling. I mean, they're creatives. They're bands. They want to tell you they're number one. James Cameron wanted to tell you they're number one. LeBron James wants to tell you he's number one. The Golden State Warriors want to hang on to number one. The Boston Celtics were trying to get back to number one. In movies, they screened a Steven Spielberg movie that I really want to see called The Fablemans, which is his kind of take on his youth growing up. The magic of movies, what got him, what, what seduced him, the magic of movies that seduced him into becoming a director himself. I've already seen people who walked out of the Toronto Film Festival where it was screened saying, just give all the Oscars to Steven. He's going to win them all. Does anyone else have a chance? I mean, it's a foregone conclusion. They've already positioned it with chart-topping, award-winning success. They want you to know that what they thought in their minds is not going to be eclipsed by anything else they've seen yet, and they have lodged their votes in September as Fablemans was being screened. And the Fablemans may, may actually, in fact, be that important. So much so that they've already told you it's going to win all the Oscars. It's a foregone conclusion. And you know what? It may just be that good. But how are they? They didn't say, I really loved it. It's beautiful. It's sweet. They want to immediately tell you how it's going to dominate the award circuit and the critical acclaim. Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Doesn't start. It, the Godfather is just a snippet of, of, of uh, what was going on. I mean, it gives a lot of detail on the Godfather. But this movie isn't just the Godfather. And it goes on. It chronicles Francis Ford Coppola who became the auteur of auteurs. If you were alive in the mid to late 70s, early 80s, Francis Ford Coppola was kind of the auteur du jour, okay? He was more acclaimed and uh, seen as a more commercial uh, version of Martin Scorsese. They both liked gangsters, uh, gangster films. They both liked R-rated, heavy, melodramatic themes. But Francis was the more celebrated and acclaimed, and wait for it, award-winning. And he had box office because his movies made tons of money. He had a young acolyte in George, Light, George Lucas that he 
had earmarked as a, as a visionary. And if you don't believe me, read Steven Spielberg. He is quoted in Easy Rider's Raging Bulls. Steven Spielberg on Francis Ford Coppola. It was no secret that Francis... <laughs> it was no secret that I saw in Francis's eyes someone who was friendly to young people, young talent. He was producing for George Lucas. I thought, here's someone who's going to open up the gates for all of us. Kind of Steven Spielberg is looking at Francis Ford Coppola. This book is, is published in 1997. It was researched throughout the 90s. So this is through Steven Spielberg's prior to him or just after. He's won his Academy Award when he's talking. You know, he's already done his Schindler's List. He's established himself as, a, as the premier blockbuster filmmaker. I mean, hit after hit after hit. Jurassic Park kind of gave him another legacy uh, uh, film. So he says, I thought, here's somebody who's going to open up the gates for all of us. But he only opened the gates for George. In, in Francis's eyes, and I fear in George's eyes, I was working inside the system. They were working outside the system. So Steven Spielberg is telling you how Francis Ford Coppola was seen. A heavy, a major mover and shaker that was going to break new ground for young talent. He had done so with George Lucas. George Lucas's THX movie had done poorly. Warner Brothers wanted their money back. They made an enemy out of Francis Ford Coppola in the, in the, in the meantime, which I have to believe that chip on the shoulder helped drive Francis to repay the debt and establish himself to the point that he could never, he would never have to look back. That he would never have to look back at, uh, at Warner Brothers. Uh, George Lucas, he helped produce American Graffiti on film. You know, looking right at the camera, George Lucas will tell you in Empire of Dreams, his epic three-hour Star Wars documentary that is, I still believe, still available on on, uh, on Disney+. Plus. Early on in the documentary, he will tell you that it was Francis that challenged him to make a comedy. Why don't you lay off the heavy uh, sci-fi melodrama and make a comedy and so he set about to make American Graffiti American Graffiti turned out to be a giant hit there are stories in this book about the studio reaching out and saying oh could we have some of this reshot could you help uh George listen to us and 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 it was still that 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 Francis was exerting control over George where he didn't want control exerted he wanted something that he would call his own and through that George and Francis's relationship on American Graffiti fractured. So that by the time that George was pitching Star Wars, which we all know goes on to be like a once-in-a-lifetime, a once-in-a-lifetime achievement. It's not just a cinematic success. Think of the toys, the lunch pails, the thermoses, the folders, the, sh- the, 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 the apparel, shirts, jackets, bags. I mean, Star Wars is a licensing force like nothing I have ever seen in my entire life. And I have been alive since prior to Star Wars. I remember very much, very well what the world looked like prior. My awareness came about at around age six. For three and a half good years, I lived in a world where Star Wars wasn't the biggest deal. I know what that looks like. I was in line to buy cool cartoon Marvel Comics themed peachy folders and thermostats that reflected Saturday morning cartoons that I loved that were on end caps at the drugstore, at the, at the, at the, uh, at the grocery store. It was a Planet of the Apes world. It was a Land of the Lost world. 
There was nothing like Star Wars. When Star Wars came in, it hit like an avalanche, and Francis Ford Coppola had nothing to do with it. George set up Star Wars without Francis Ford Coppola, with Alan Ladd Jr. at 20th Century Fox. And again, there was trepidation the entire time. That was a very uh, you know, difficult time with George making that Star Wars, but he did it without Francis. Funny enough, I got a quote from Mr. Mr. Francis Ford Coppola from Easy Riders Aging, Raging Bulls from Peter Biskind about how Francis then looked at George. Now, again, Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 are monster, critically acclaimed, award-winning block, box office successes. Francis was the king. He, he in, in, in a... Uh, in this book, he talks about walking down the driveway, the driveway every Monday in the early 70s after Godfather came out and having a million dollars in his check every Monday. Million, I mean, a million dollar check in his uh, mailbox. And back then, that is big money. 1973, 1974, million dollars a week. He set up his vineyard. He, set, he got his planes. It, it, it details uh, very carefully all of the ways that Francis amassed his fortune, the wineries, uh, he loved cars, he loved homes, he bought them all, he became you know, the king that he saw himself as, and let's be honest, if you or I made Godfather and it was that good, we'd feel pretty good about ourselves too. But George, and he clashed on American Graffiti, George went away. Francis Ford Coppola gives this quite stinging Commentary about George right here. He says, I used to bring him along with me everywhere I went. But he didn't bring me along with him. I helped him, but clearly, once he went away, he went away. That is a tale of two fractured friends. And, you know, there's a certain set of people that believe that George and his style of filmmaking and Steven Spielberg and their style of filmmaking ruined Cinema, it ruined it. It ruined it for the, you know, Martin Scorsese's, the Dennis Hoppers, for the for the uh, Warren Beatty's. It ruined it for the Robert Altman's and the Billy Friedkins. And, and, and if you don't know who that is, Billy Friedkin directed The Exorcist. Okay? Uh, uh, Martin Scorsese, you know, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bulls. Uh, you know, Dennis Hopper, Easy Rider. Got the, I mean, part of what the book's named after. These, uh, these uh, directors had been making smaller acclaimed films. And now they were being asked to make blockbusters. Now, let me, let me, uh, let me, let me bring you into full view of uh, who Robert Altman was. Because he was quite, in the 90s, Robert Altman was still putting out acclaimed works. I mean, he, he was still drawing big giant box office. Uh, he, he, uh, he was still big, big, big stars wanted to work with him all the way through the nineties. His filmography is incredible. He came to, uh, he came to, to prominence by his 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 mid seventies work, which was uh, Mash, which turned everything on its head. The the movie Mash, you know, which spawned the TV show of the same name, which was taking a lot of the same cues and theatrical direction of this acclaimed movie. 
He directed MASH. He directed Warren Beatty and McCabe and Mrs. Miller. He directed an absolute fantastic Elliot Gold movie called The Long Goodbye. And then he hit it big and people flipped out when he directed Nashville. And Nashville was a movie that uh, everybody just went went crazy over. It was it was uh, along with Mash. It was he did huge ensembles, and that was the kind of stuff that people just they just rallied between Mash and Nashville. Robert Altman was seen as the auteurs auteurs. He could he could put you know just everyday people in everyday situations sitting around and uh, espousing kind of dialogue that we would then go on to experience with Tarantino. That's why I, I tell you, if you can see uh, The Long Goodbye, uh, you would uh, just completely dig it. it. It's one of Elliot Gould's absolute uh, very best works, and it's best. It's based on a best-selling book by Raymond Chandler. Okay, and... Uh, it didn't do great at the box office, but again, it was just, wow, this is fantastic. He is an amazing director. Well, going into the 90s, he made The Player, which was a stinging, stinging rebuttal on the movie industry. Uh, he also went on to make a movie that people were completely, uh, again, acclaimed, uh, just just over the, over the moon. It had Andy McDowell, Julianne Moore, Tim Robbins, uh, Jack Lemmon. Matthew Modine, Ann Archer, Fred Ward, Jennifer Jason Leigh. It was called Shortcuts. He followed up the player with Shortcuts. And then, when I told you that the big names came, Julia Roberts, at the peak of the Julia Roberts fame, at the peak of Julia Roberts' career, she said, I want to be in a Robert Altman movie. And that movie was about the fashion industry and was called Ready to Wear. Julia Roberts, you know, Sophia Loren, I mean, the, the, Julia was the uh, was the bright, shining star in here. Rupert Everett from My Best Friend's Wedding, Aunt Lily Taylor, uh, Forrest Whitaker, Richard E. Grant. Robert Altman was still getting... I mean, there was no bigger star, honestly, between 1990 and 1998. And Julia Roberts, she eclipsed all the men. She got paid tons of money. Her movies opened number one, back to back to back. I mean, in the summer of 99, she had Notting Hill and she had... Um, you know, Runaway Bride. She had back-to-back number one hits in different genres, both rom-com, but one a British, very British kind of almost drama. It had something really important to say. And then, you know, Runaway Bride was just kind of a Gary Marshall, kind of a goofy, like, semi-reimagining a pretty woman because it reunited Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. So I've gone on eight minutes about Robert Altman. What the hell am I trying to say about Robert Altman? Well, on his journey... Because of the blockbuster effect, because of the blockbuster like movement, like you got to direct a big hit, you got to direct. And I'm going to tell you, even as a kid, I was like, this isn't going to work out. Robert Altman was uh, asked to direct Popeye. Yes, the cartoon Popeye. Um, you know, I is what I is and that's all that I be. Okay, Popeye. The spinach. I eat the spinach. Kind of little little Todd McFarlane in there. Olive oil, Bluto, Popeye. They were doing a, long, a, a live action Popeye and they had Robin Williams who had taken TV and entertainment by storm through his stand-up, his comedy, Mork and Mindy. 
and he had he had been Mork for several seasons. He had been on Happy Days. He was seen as a legit comedic powerhouse, and they were going to put him in this like literal, you know, Popeye live action adaptation because Superman had worked in 1978. Well, if comic book superheroes are back, comic book superheroes. Are, if if Warner Brothers pulled that off. With with Dick Donner, who had done the Omen, who had who had, Richard Donner had done the Omen movie and 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 had made a huge giant splash, making a a a a a, a film in the thriller horror genre that could stand up to the runaway success of The Exorcist, stand alongside it in audiences' eyes. They gave him a superhero movie, a family superhero film. So now this is their version of that. Well, we have Popeye. Popeye's super popular. He's a cartoon character. He has cartoons and comics and comic strips. Let's do a live action of them. Do you know who produced that? The same guys who produced Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, The Rock, Jerry Bruckheimer, and Don Simpson. Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson produced Popeye. Okay? And... uh they were paired by the studio with Robert Altman. The payoff is coming. The payoff is coming. Why I am going to tell you about this. The payoff is coming. The long buildup. I had to give you the critical, you know, um, acclaim that Robert Altman brought with him. And, and so that you would um, appreciate this. The movie was an absolute gigantic flop. There was just nonstop production clashes. Between Altman, between Don Simpson, who when Don Simpson was alive, because it was Simpson Bruckheimer, that's why when you went and saw Top Gun Maverick this summer, it said Simpson Bruckheimer because they were the two that brought you, you know, Top Gun and 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 the glory of that original film. So they wanted to honor him and keep his name on there. Don Simpson was um, uh, a a, a it, it was no secret he was super into drugs and alcohol and uh, it was believed to be a contributing factor in his death. He died way too young. Uh, Bruckheimer then went on, picked it up and and never looked back and obviously got into the big giant kind of almost fantasy production game with the Pirates of the Caribbean movies that greatly like eclipsed almost everything else that he was involved with. But prior to that, when I was a kid, it was Top Gun, it was Beverly Hills Cop and, and, and just so much more. But, uh, they won the rights to to uh, Popeye in a bidding war, okay? And uh, Columbia did. And so they had a lot of expectations. They wanted a big, giant hit. And uh, Altman has said he felt unemployable after the critical lambasting that Popeye received. I remember going, this isn't going to work. I could just tell. I don't care how much Robin Williams looks like Popeye and good God did Shelley Duvall look like she walked right out of the comic strip as olive oil. But let me give you a, we're not going to get more creative, uh, creator toxicity than you're going to get here. Don Simpson on Robert Altman, a critically acclaimed director who would put Popeye in the rearview mirror, as I've expressed to you, and go on to work with some of the biggest stars in Hollywood and continue to make killer movies. The player, shortcuts, ready to wear. He, Robert Altman, Robert Altman passed away in, uh, in 2006. Don Simpson quoted about Robert Altman. None of us really wanted to make Popeye and we hated Robert Altman. This is a public quote. None of us really wanted to make Popeye and we hated Robert Altman, who was a true fraud. 
Okay, we're, we're, we're definitely, it's, Don Simpson is not content just to slice him. He then wants to open the wound and pour an entire jar of salt in. He says Altman was full of gibberish and full of himself a pompous, pretentious asshole. That is Don Simpson, whom he produced Popeye with, who Robert Altman was the director of, and uh, with a less than glowing commentary on his director. None of us really wanted to make Popeye, and we hated Robert Altman, who was a true fraud. Altman was full of gibberish and full of himself, a pompous, pretentious asshole. That's lovely. Now, I want to give that to you because I need you to prepare. I need you to prepare for what Robert Altman told Peter Biskind, the author of Easy Rider's Raging Bulls. Okay, get ready. Because, yeah, I, okay, here we go. Robert Altman, the director of, <laughs> Robert Altman, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, Director of Nashville, MASH, ready to wear, shortcuts, the player. This guy knew how to get critics and audiences alike worked up in a lather, but maybe he was not the best fit for Popeye. Well, Robert Altman had this comment to say on Don Simpson, who died in the early 90s. Don Simpson died in the early 90s, which is why then Bruckheimer goes on to become a solo production act. Don Simpson was a bad guy, a bum. Remember, this is Robert Altman's quote that I'm giving you. I want to, so this is Robert Altman on Don Simpson, one half of the Simpson-Bruckheimer production entity. Don Simpson was a bad guy, a bum. It was a big plus to our industry that he died. I'm only sorry he didn't live longer and suffer more. <laughs> I'm only sorry he didn't live longer and suffer more. Okay, so... At this point, we pivot away from the films. We we can get back. That's why there's going to be an, an, a part two. We've read that Francis Ford Coppola was hurt by George Lucas, who he helped shepherd, and then George just left him behind and never looked back and never extended an olive branch to Francis to maybe help Francis when Francis was in need. Because again, outside of the you know Godfather movies, Francis was very successful with Apocalypse Now, but then he, like everybody, uh, there was a great movie. It stars Jeff Bridges. I love it, but it was not successful. That doesn't mean it's not great. That doesn't mean I'll never not love it. It's called Tucker, A Man in His Dream. It stars Jeff Bridges. It was produced, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. You know, it was part of his, uh, the, the the period of his career that he hit a snag, okay? And and uh, and I, I think maybe he was um, maybe looking for a life, lo- a, a life raft during that time. And it didn't come because George was too busy making Raiders, making Star Wars, making Willow. And, uh, you know, because, again, not everybody, not everybody lodges hits, not even someone as talented as, as, as Francis Ford Coppola. Um, some of his some of his his misfires and he had a couple. Uh, and they and they really happened in the mid 80s. Uh, he, uh, you know. The Cotton Club was a giant wipeout. Outsiders was great. Apocalypse Now was great. Outsiders slightly underperformed, if you can believe that. It was not the runaway hit they wanted it to be. The Cotton Club was a giant wipeout. 
put him at odds with the producers, the studios. Peggy Sue Got Married was a nice conventional, you know, return to form. Uh, and, and, and got him kind of back in. But, I mean, n- n- now he's, it seems as if he's taking gigs. Uh, now it seems as if he's taking gigs to just... Uh, as, as, as almost like a studio a studio guy. Tucker, A Man in His Dreams, is, is brilliant. But it did not perform well at the box office. And it continued to circle that, 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 that Francis, that his best days are behind him. Look, he went on to make a visionary... Uh, uh, depiction of Dracula in, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, which came out in 1992 in the summer of Image Comics. But in this period, when I when I when I talk to you post Apocalypse Now, you are talking about the entire 80s. The entire 80s were, was not kind. That doesn't mean the work wasn't good. Again, Tucker and Man's Dream is a brilliant movie. It is a I, I would go so far as to say it is a masterwork. It tells a true story of a of a you know an auto engineer visionary jeff bridges is incredible i highly recommend it it's a great drama very entertaining very period piece uh but he felt that george didn't take him along because the the 80s were really they belonged to george between the ending chapters between empire and return and raiders and temple of doom and last crusade and willow i mean george had a huge run of, I mean, he could great green light pretty much anything. People wanted to work with him. No room at the end, no room at the table for Francis. So we've dictated that. We've said that Steven Spielberg felt slighted by Francis. That maybe Francis wasn't, thought Steven was a, was a studio hack and, 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 and didn't want to deal with him. And again, then we've got Don Simpson calling his director a pretentious, pompous asshole. And then his director saying, I'm glad he died. I'm only sad he didn't suffer more. Whoa. So, what does this have to do with comic books, Liefeld? A lot. We have entered this new age as of the time of my sharing this with you. There was a period when, even though we handed out microphones to everybody, and that's what Twitter and Facebook, that's what all of this is, is microphones to everybody. You can get on a keyboard, you can become a keyboard warrior, you can put up a phony name, and you can talk crap about somebody. Uh, And spew lies. Just absolutely spew lies. Say stuff that frankly doesn't reflect reality at all, but act as if it does. And you're going to get people that fall for it because so much, and that is why this podcast exists. So much misinformation is out there. Look, I really like some of the guys that have been putting out misinformation, but one creator, uh, recently this last week, I think because he has a romantic viewpoint of a filmmaker who had a Robert Altman kind of Francis Ford Coppola 80s stretch of very little to no success whatsoever wanted to, based on one drawing, kind of romantically create this notion that, that, you know, there was this instance where this artist had the leverage, had the upper hand, had the ability to, to, to put a drawing or a proposal in front of Marvel and put them on the clock. I stepped kindly in. I had had dealings with this talent that he was romanticizing and said, that's not the case. This person never had any leverage. This person kept getting removed from job after job after job. I've worked with this person. I did. I provided work with this person. I was asked to do this person a favor through a friend by facilitating work for him. And I did. And it was terribly received. And it was the beginning of the path that this artist would uh, journey on to create a vision for himself that people would accept the work in a better way than they had ever 
accepted it when he was doing characters from DC and Marvel. But but this notion, and I I even told the person that it must be nice to create this romantic notion, and uh, and and put it forth because you value this person so much. But this is not correct at all. There is a ton of misinformation, and where do you think that comes from? Creator A has a fan base that wants to see him succeed above all else. I have met a New England's Patriot fan or two or 10. Have you? I live in Southern California. They are here. They are among us. They will roll to you, especially during the time of Brady. And now they cling to that time. That that was the time that the greatest football ever played was being played. And that there was nobody ever than Tom Brady. They won't even entertain uh, uh, John Elway or Joe Montana or anyone who could come up possibly. Bill Belichick was Dr. Doom. The hoodie. Greatest coach of all time. I even fell for that. I believed that it was all Bill Belichick. And then Tom Brady decided to make an argument for himself. And he made the dramatic move to Buccaneers. Went to Tampa. New England's fans were shattered. I listened to a couple of them. They have podcasts. They're still wounded. They're hurting. They're whining. And uh, they're desperate for New England to find success again so that they can put Tom Brady behind him. They love him. They will always love him. But this this has exposed them to not be who they claimed that they were because it wasn't Tom. It was Bill. Well, now we know it was Tom. It was, he was the unicorn. Um, but those fans don't want to hear about your Giants and how Eli Manning owns Tom Brady and beat him twice. I don't care how. I watched both those games. Those were the outcomes. Same with comic fans. They want to look past, past anything else. They want to discount the Eli Manning Giants head-to-head head matchups or the equivalent of in comics and just say, my guy's the greatest and your guy sucks. Your guy sucks is what I wanted to say to the Philadelphia 76ers. I wanted to walk out and cockily extend my hand and say, hey, thanks for showing up to the owner of the, 57, the, the Philadelphia 76ers, because that's who I was seated against. That's who I wanted. That, that's what I wanted to express. But I didn't get the chance. He winked at me. He got the best. My Lakers went down. First blemish, first loss. It hurt. I couldn't roll big. He was the guy that could say, scoreboard, scoreboard. And for a few days, that night and a few others, he had it. They were one up on the Lakers in the NBA Finals. And... uh in comic books, in music, Irving Azov wanting to tell you in the Eagles documentary, we're number one. People want to be top. And there's an entire rack of comic creators that I could go to right now. And I, I could grab a row of comics at my local comic store, which has aisles and aisles and shelves and shelves. I could grab seven to eight of those comics and I could open those up and ask you, why do we not discuss any of these names in here? Some of them veterans of 15, 20 years. Why aren't we talking about them? Why is the same names being discussed? Why are there comic book equivalents of James Cameron? Because they want that guy to fail. They want that guy, those guys to fail. I have seen people get completely drunk. I did. I think I did an episode on it. It's not you, it's Batman. Okay. Um, as, as I have shown, Batman stays at the top of the charts. It's, it's Matthew McConaughey in Dazed and Confused when he says he loves high school girls because you grow up and they stay the same age. It is a wicked, smart, funny line from that film. But the bottom line is, you know, every year when high school, there's going to be pretty high school girls coming on campus, pretty freshmen for senior boys to court. 
That's how it was when I was in high school. That's how it was when my boys went to high school. And of course, yes, there are pretty girls for other girls to court and vice versa and all of that. That goes without saying. I'm, I'm literally depicting, going all the way back to this depiction of Matthew McConaughey in a 1976 a drama set made in 1992, set or 1993, set in 1976, the last day of, uh, of school graduation or, 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 you know, the last day of school in 1976. Comic book. Batman, you'll come and go. Batman will stay the same. He stays the same age. He will continue to be Batman. You will move on. You will graduate high school. Batman will still be there. He will still be there for you to write and top the charts with. Because it's not you, it's Batman. It, it never has been other than fantastic, uh, Mr. Fantastic Frank Miller. But for years, you could be mediocre and go draw the X-Men. And as long as you were drawing Wolverine and Storm and Nightcrawler and Colossus, you got to sit at the top of the charts. You got the benefit of drawing the most popular characters in comics. And there are protections within the big two. Characters that people adore and will buy. They'll buy them no matter what. And within it all, there are tribes and tribes who want to push their creators above all else. There is a comics journal artist, a comics journal interview with one John Byrne. And in that article, he boasts incessantly about his own popularity. And he takes shots at Bob Layton, at Jim Starlin, at Marv Wolfman, at George Perez. Man. There's a lot. He goes after everybody. He is a guy firmly ensconced in his own success that the X-Men is the runaway number one hottest book in, in comics, that he's been courted by everyone to do everything. The guy's phone ran off the hook. Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? He was given offers all the time. He just goes off. Says Jim Starlin was doing it wrong. Says Len Wein... The way Len Wein was doing comics was wrong. The way Marv Wolfman was writing the Fantastic Four books that he did with him was wrong. George Perez does it wrong, takes too many panels to tell a story. Everyone looks the same. Everyone argues the same. He even mocks a George Perez character. This is in a comics journal. I've quoted this in my, um, you know, rivalry that defined a decade. It's, I think, my number two podcast. It's my, it's my two my favorite stories about John Byrne and George Perez. And if you were in a comic store in the mid-80s, you would argue over who was better, Perez or Byrne. I would go with my former assistant who then grew into his own and became a full-fledged comic book artist and creator, Marat Michaels, who started out assisting me in the X-Force offices that was called my studio. We would go to conventions in Los Angeles and there'd be a group of teenagers. And I like George Perez. I like John Byrne. No way. George Perez can't hold a candle to John Byrne. What are you talking about? John Byrne can't drop faces and crowd scenes and people and the storytelling that George, no way, John draws the prettiest, the slickest, the best tech, oh, the best Wolverine. Then a guy go, I like Art Adams. I really like that new guy, Art Adams. People want to win these fights. See, in that instance, unless there's a chart that was coming out, you can't really point and say scoreboard. In the Howard Chaikin Comics Journal interview that I quoted from in 1986, in the recent American Flag episode of Rob Observations. He is asked by the interviewer, he is asked by Gary Groth towards the end of the interview to talk about his own peer group. Now, I'm telling you that American Flag was a blueprint for everything that Frank Miller did on Dark Knight. Nothing that Frank Miller had done on Dark Knight ever looked like how he presented Dark Knight before. And American Flag had come out three years prior. Daredevil did not look like Dark Knight. Ronin 
the the book that preceded Dark Knight did not look like Dark Knight. Dark Knight looked like Dark Knight because Frank Miller looked at American Flag and had his head blown. I mean, just like the rest of us, and immediately implemented so much of Howard's tricks. Howard is asked to talk about his contemporaries. This interview is the end of 1986. He speaks glowingly of a bright young talent with an incredible drawing style named Art Adams and how everything that Art Adams is doing has got his attention. He then speaks of his adoration and affection for Walt Simonson and everything that Walt Simonson was doing on Thor, which, you know, had taken comics by storm shortly after American Flag took comics by storm. They also share somewhat of a design sense. He never once, other than saying he was in a meal with Frank Miller, he does not praise, he does not mention Frank Miller. There is no, he, Watchmen is a book he comments on. He comments on Dave Gibbons, specifically the artist of Watchmen. He comments on the page design and the uh, achievement of Watchmen. He does not mention Dark Knight. He does not mention Frank Miller's work and does not comment on it in any way, shape, or form. I think because he was aware at the time, I, I am diving deep into the psyche. I am proposing. It is, I do not know with any certainty, but I am proposing that it was because maybe he was a little stunned that Dark Knight was getting the acclaim it was having taken some of American Flag's influence. And in in this case, he was incredibly uh, generous to say nothing. Now, John Byrne, on the other hand, loves to take shots. In contrast, spends an entire Comics Journal interview in 1980. It's a summer special. 1980, it's got the X-Men on the cover. It's got a deep, deep, minty green background. It's the entire X-Men Inc. by Terry Austin, I don't have the issue in front of me. It's in a Mylar bag. I don't like to take it out. It's fragile. But I, it's 1980 John Byrne Comics Journal. You can go to the Comics Journal website, access their library, sign up, pay a fee. You will be quickly and immediately rewarded. Trust me. But along the lines over the last few years, as we've given everyone a microphone, and never more so than recently, creators have taken shots at other creators. It's bad for them. Be above it. For years, Marvel was convinced by a certain group of representation and talent that because my generation, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, we never got hundreds and hundreds of dollars a page, not the way that they were handing out page rates in the 2000s and, and most recently, because we made our money on royalties. I made a million dollars off X-Force number one because it sold five million copies. I made a million dollars off Youngblood number one because it sold a million copies. I made a million dollars off Supreme because it sold a million copies. I made a million dollars off Brigade because it sold a million copies. Jim Lee made a million dollars off Wildcats because it sold a million copies. Jim Lee made, I don't know how many, million off eight million copies of X-Men. I made as much as I did on X-Force at five million because I wrote it, penciled it, and inked it. I got 3.5 of an available four royalty points. On X-Men, even though it sold 8 million, Chris Claremont got 1.5, Jim got 1.5, and Scott Williams got 1%. So I don't know exactly how that divvied up. I just know I made I made it like a bandit on X-Force because the sales were there for me. They showed up for me. Same with the image work. We didn't get paid in advance. We didn't get a royalty against future sales. Marvel started paying people up front, giant contracts, signing like guarantees. And then these guys would go out and underperform again and again and again and again. And I kept wondering, is anyone going to say anything? But they were part of the protected because the guys that put them in the positions to succeed and they failed to succeed, the powers that be didn't want to go, well, we kind of missed that one by a wide measure. 
And then you could see them scramble. Oh, there's something working in the space, in the comic space. There's this idea that's working. Let's now, to capitalize on this person, let's put this person in that situation so that we can get our money back. That we can justify the incredible contract commitment that we have to them. This happened all throughout the 2000s. 2000, but we were all quiet. In the movie industry, they wouldn't be quiet. They would say, you wiped out, you hit the iceberg. They would say, you weren't worth the money. When Jim Carrey got $20 million to star in The Cable Guy, that was my attorney. Her name was Deborah Klein. She had represented me for two years. She called me, said, Rob, I just got the biggest payday for anyone in the history of Hollywood, Jim Carrey, for Cable Guy off the success of Dumb and Dumber and Ace Ventura. She got him $20 million up front. Broke the bank. And then, of course, Tom Cruise is going to get that. Demi Moore got that for striptease or something comparable. Then it was the upfront money chase. And that lasted for a few years until studio said, what are we doing this for? We don't have to do this. And these don't bear themselves out. And we're going to start using their failures against them. In comic books, it was hush-hush. We don't tell anybody who's getting paid when this stuff doesn't come through. And no, that hush-hush is not a result. Uh, let, me, let me tell you right now, that's not a nod towards hush. Hush sold very well. That was a that, and I'm speaking of the powers that be at Marvel. Several guys were earmarked for huge success that didn't have it, and then they were sewn into other successful models, situation. I'll call them spaces, in order to capitalize and be able to monetize what they had lost on betting on them so big. But we wouldn't sit and talk about it. But I now I think today we would. Creators are calling out other creators at an alarming rate. No, there is nothing along the lines of Robert Altman's Don Simpson was a bad guy, a bum. It's a big plus to our industry that he died. I'm only sorry he didn't live longer and suffer more. No, that hasn't been said yet. No one has Robert altman anyone, but it's coming. I fear it's coming. Um, I have had my fair share of people throw st stones at me. I don't care. They don't dent me. They're just words. They're meant to tear down. And what they are meant to do is affect uh, my fan base and shame them. But my fan base isn't being shamed again. That's not going to ever happen again. And um, I speak just for my fan base alone, but I see other people. And the reason is there are other retailers. There are other stores. Can you believe there are stores still here in Southern California who claim openly to not support me and my work? I can tell you that right now. I know that for a fact. And yet they will do it for favored customers who are like, well, you're going to give me that life of book, right? And it's behind the counter. And it is given to them as they purchase their books. Yes, I might actually have footage of this. Because people, word gets around, then people with their cell phones, they want to do it. It's just, it's a thing. People are trying to pick their favorites for you and wipe out your favorites at the same time. Or position theirs above you. And whether it's sports or films, it's not always that easy. It's a creative endeavor. Why is anyone trying to tell anyone else what things to like and what not to like? I'm not going to tell you what to like. You know that I despise that. Like what you like, when you like, how you like. But in the creative space, I have my theories as to why things have gotten uglier and, as, and are as ugly as they've ever been. But I'm not going to completely go there in this opening salvo of, I don't know, maybe I'll call this creator toxicity. But we'll get there. I'll get a title before I load this up. But uh, it, we are swimming in turbulent waters because everyone has a mic. Everyone has a microphone. Twitter and Instagram and Facebook are being used. They're being weaponized to try and tear others down. And then there's this entire new generation of artists coming up who don't understand uh, what... I, I don't think they understand the rules of engagement 
and politeness and uh, quiet measured discourse has been thrown to the wind as people take to their mics and they bash all manner of different creator, man, woman, uh, white, black, Asian, everyone is taking shots at each other. It's uncomfortable. It's unfortunate. But uh, as I've said, people give public quotes to a book. They, 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 they write their names next to them and they let them fly. And sometimes they're so comfortable, like John Byrne was in a 1980 interview, that they're just like, I don't care. I'm going to say the things that he said about Bob Layton would obviously get him canceled today. And uh, it, 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 it is, it is like, it, it's, it's over the line. It's, it's over the line. It's stuff that he shouldn't have said then. He shouldn't say it now. And if he did, it would it'll have real ramifications. But he's just one guy. And there are many, many others. It's easy when you're asked what inspires you to praise people. I find it easy to praise people. I like to praise people. I like to tell you people I like. I, I see not so much work that I don't like, but people who who try to position themselves in a way that they have not gotten there earnestly because it was on the back of something else. And again, I come at, I, I'm a school of hard knocks guy. And I view myself in very much the same light as a creator in, in the, in not the same level of achievement. So you need to hear me say that. I'm going to say that three times, not the same level of achievement, comma, not the same level of achievement, comma, not the same level of achievement. But when Frank Miller took over Daredevil and when Walt Simonson took over Thor and they had to rejuvenate moribund book with with sales that had just completely wiped out by monthly status and rejuvenated it with their own imagination via Electra and Beta Ray Bill. That's how I viewed my time on the New Mutants. That's what I thought I was going to do. I was going to do that. And I did. And I, I'm very fortunate. And I celebrate that kind of uh, achievement. But if you're just going to make a character that's already popular and you're going to do a run on them and then you're going to dine out and try and convince yourself that you're the only run on that character that ever mattered, you will be sorely mistaken. But you may actually get a rabid fan base who will stand up briefly and and try and herald you among all that come before. You know, a podcast earlier was about the 10 ways that Dark Knight changed Batman forever. And for my money, we don't give Frank Miller nearly enough credit. And I don't think the people who are working on Batman give Frank nearly enough credit. That's my opinion. I'll own that. I said it here on, out loud on my podcast. I'll own it. There's a lot of Batman books. There's a lot. At one point, there was 15 books in one week. Not month. One week. So that means a lot of people out there who could be tipping their hat to the man who gave you the Batman armor and the tank as the Batmobile and the Superman relationship and the female Robin and the legacy uh, uh just just so much. The, the the killer establishment of the yellow Kevlar bat symbol. A lot to think about, a lot to absorb. Creator versus creator is is a real thing. This was the table setting for all that will come. I've done feud episodes. The feud episodes are, the, are, are fun when people go after each other in interviews, subsequent interviews, debates, the feuds. Look them up in the backlog. The feud episodes are great. I, I encourage you to check those out. We started doing those last year, but this has has now entered a new level where Facebook postings, Twitter rants are getting uglier and uglier, and I am of the opinion it is bad form. Say nothing. Be measured. Don't fight. The best thing that my kids ever instilled in me over the last five years is do not fight on Twitter. Dad, do not block people on Twitter because they share them as giant achievements. And I've seen it. People sharing the other people. I got blocked. I've had people lie that I blocked them. I don't block them. I mute you. It's the best tool ever. 
I got insulted. 98% of my insults recently came from, and I kid you not, I, I'm not responsible for this, but they all came from Brazil. It felt like bots. I had to translate each and every comment, and it was all Brazil, 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 Brazil. I don't even know if they were really from Brazil. That's what the tweet was identified as. I mute, 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 and don't deal again. And that's the best way. Don't give the block. That's my opinion. Everyone has someone who is deriding their work. Now more than ever because everyone has a mic. And one guy, I know a friend who has a jealous friend who has never gotten over the fact that he broke into comics. That his friend broke into comics and he didn't. No, I am not talking about myself. Please. This is a legit friend. And it cost them their friendship. And the other guy's still bitter and has nothing to say about the guy that broke through. Because he didn't. Because his because he, the bitter friend, did not. And so he he constantly drags and derides. It is sad. It is sorry. It is bad form. Let's be better. I haven't assigned names to a lot of the problematic stuff that I brought up today. It's not worth it. Why do that? Why, why create more ill will? Keeping it vague is sometimes the way to go. If it's in print and I can read it to you, I will. When it's my opinion... I'm not going to be as aggressive with it because I want you to not be triggered. It's a notion. And the notion is more important than the name that is attached to the notion. So we have set the table. We're going to monitor this, keep see, see how it keeps going. But in sports, dueling quarterbacks, they're encouraged to say bad things about each other. They're encouraged to dunk on each other. NBA, baseball, filmmaking, television, it all gets nuts. It's all gotten nuts. And it and I, I fear, my friends, it's going to get worse. All you can control is how you react to it. And I trust and pray that you react to it by walking above it and moving on. And that's all I have to say on that. So there you have it. It is a competitive business. And we're going to revisit this again, as I said. I mean, you got big names here. You got Spielberg, Lucas, Coppola, Cameron, Big Johnny B., Howard Shaken, myself, I mean, I, prominent movers and shakers all over entertainment. It's competitive. Elbows are sharp. Knees are sharp. The jabs are there sometimes. You know, the competition just uh, just has to be noted. And we'll be doing that uh, over the course of a few episodes. This is just the tip of the iceberg. We'll, we'll, we'll get some really good stuff in the weeks to come. You guys, you know at the end of every episode... I share the generous and kind and and, and incredibly uh, generous and and uh, enthusiastic responses that you guys leave uh, in regards to uh, to all of the, the 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 reviews that you guys give us. It uh, is is so important to leave the reviews, share the reviews. Uh, I, I, I literally cannot even begin to tell you how uh, this podcast benefits from you guys uh, sharing these reviews. They are uh, really uh, just just uh, the, the the most really the just the the most. Uh, important way that you can help us stand out on the platform. And I, I really just cannot express to you enough how much I appreciate it. And when you leave a review, I read it at the end of the show as I am going to read this today. 
This very generous review, again, a, a incredibly kind five stars was left by a user named Zanons, Z-A-N-O-N-Z, okay? Uh, and he says, uh, rekindled my love of comics. I grew up with Rob's X-Force and Jim Lee's X-Men, but it drifted away. Po- Rob's podcast has not only brought back amazing memories, but he has introduced me to creators past, present, And I am now as passionate as ever from Jack Kirby's Eternals to Robert Kirkman's Walking Dead. I am going back to shows and picking up issues. Thank you for for reconnecting a fan with his original obsession. P.S. I love how you talk about comic art, how you break down the gestures, rendering, blocking, etc. It helps me understand what the artists were doing and has given me a new appreciation for art I didn't love so much when I first saw it. Thank you. Thank you. Really, very, very generous. Thank you. I just cannot believe how how incredibly generous you guys are. We're going to do a two for today. This is from Brandon L78. Best podcast ever. How am I not going to read that? Right? Thank you. He gives us five stars. I am so glad. I am so, so glad that Rob started Rob's Observations. I enjoy hearing Rob's insights on the comics industry. His personal experiences about the these are his words, superstar artist, creator, and a fan in learning about comics history in general. To me, this is the very best podcast ever, and I hope it continues for as long as Rob can do it. Honestly, this podcast got me started actively collecting bronze and silver age comics after not even buying any comics for more than 20 years. Thank you, Rob. You guys, when you tell me that you're going back and buying comics, I love it that it stimulates the comic book economy. I love that somebody somewhere is making money off selling those to you. And that's a positive. Then you're you're getting the stimulation of experiencing them, and I'm so excited. And I'm gonna tell you right now, yesterday's comics, and by yesterday I mean last year, the year before that. I mean the further you go back, the more macho the comics are. We are living in a very not macho age of comics, and 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 you know what? Let me tell you something. Let me give you a macho product. Top Gun Maverick was macho as. Shit. It is macho as shit. It flexed. People loved it. It didn't apologize for what it was. Um, Fast and the Furious. Those movies are macho. Okay? Uh, Comics have not been macho in a long time. What you are going back and being just completely, you know, electrified by is, is just the machismo, the swagger. Okay? This isn't guys with open shirts and, and hairy chests. That's not what I'm talking about. It's just a, it's a form of brazen, unapologetic, uh, aggressive storytelling. And I, and if you're seeking it out, it makes me happy. You guys, thank you for leaving these reviews. When you leave them, I will read them and share them. Thank you. You are so kind. Thank you for all the support, all the word of mouth. Again, every signing I go to, people are just sharing with me uh, their enthusiasm for the podcast. And, and I, I'm just so happy to contribute. And if I can help, you know, pass the time, and give you something to chew on, something to learn from. Uh, I, I just appreciate it so much. You guys, I am all over social media. You might follow me on Instagram. If you don't, why not? Go go there now. I'm at Rob Liefeld. I have a blue check. That tells you it's really me. I love reading your messages, your DMs. Thank you for following me. Thank you for interacting with me. Thank you for all the nice comments that you leave. I appreciate it so much on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T. L-I-E-F-E-L-D. It never gets old to spell it. Also with the blue check. Tells you it's really me and not one of those phony baloney 
uh, fake Rob accounts. So Robert Liefeld on Twitter, Rob Liefeld on Instagram. I love interacting with you, talking with you guys. There's not a day that goes by that I'm not talking with you. And I don't know you. I do not know you, but I love talking to you, especially if we can be be polite and kind and not um, and not mean-spirited because there's just uh, I've I've been down that road in my youth and it's just not a place I want to revisit. So let's keep it cool. And that's where we do it. This page, Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld, is a dedicated fan uh, Facebook page. It's called Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld. Find it, hit it with a like, a follow, a comment. I will find you. I will like your like, and 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 if you leave a comment, I'll most likely be able to see it and comment back. On Facebook, we have a group. We have a big, large, growing group. It's called. Rob Liefeld, an extreme group, an extreme group. I am the moderator. Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, is also a moderator. We will be the ones that click you through. There's a whole bunch of great fans who love comics, folks and consumers who love comics. We all hang out there. We talk X-Force, Deadpool, Cable, Image Comics, Extreme, Profit, Brigade, Bloodstrike, Captain America, Avengers, Fantastic Four, anything that I've done, Onslaught, G.I. Joe, Snake Eyes. I'm so appreciative for all of your interactions. Please help uh, jo- join us and and, and uh, join in the fun. Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. The moderators are myself and Terry Sala, and, and that's how you know you're at the right, re- right group. You guys, I am on an app called Whatnot. Look it up in the app store. It's Whatnot. It is a the state-of-the-art, best uh, collectible app. It's taking the world by storm. You want some cool kicks, some great sports gear, memorabilia, you want trading cards, you want game cards, you want, you know, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, all the stuff my kids are into, Funko Pops, toys, comic books, you'll find me there. I do a twice-weekly show where I sign Funko Pops and toys, I draw, I remark on them, we um, offer you and share sketch art, sign comics, specialty, chromes, silver, foils that I don't share anywhere, I bring them just for the whatnot audience, I hope that you guys can partake and interact and share in those with us. Uh, I am I am doing a Friday night show this week. So if you're listening to this, jump on. I could be doing a Saturday show too. Whatnot is where it is going down. It is so exciting. I hope to see you on Whatnot. That is where we are. Again, exclusive Brigade comics. We have uh, upcoming Whatnot Spider-Man exclusives. Uh, down the road, there's a Deadpool Whatnot exclusive. Uh, we have a Brigade a couple brigade whatnot exclusives that we want you to find. I'm I'm sharing with you because people who have I am literally looking into the screen and talking to you. I think the longest we've gone is five hours. People say it's like an extension of this podcast. Um, I I am even less filtered on that. Uh, jump j- jump on in and join the fun. I'd love to see you guys hang out with me over on whatnot. At the end of every show, I encourage you to feed yourself mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Uh, what I mean by that, my interpretation of that is you got to kick back and have a good time. Uh, if it's a cheat day where you just watch all the Star Wars that's on Disney Plus or all the Warner Brothers movies on HBO Max, or you watch full seasons of The Boys like my sons are doing right now, or Invincible, um, you know, spread the love around. Streaming, movies, uh, DVDs, books, comics. Pull those comics out of your boxes, read them, and it, smell that newsprint. Smell that 90s, you know... Uh, uh, print job that's been sealed away in plastic. Enjoy your cardstock, your die cuts, your 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 chromiums. Get out and 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 enjoy the stuff you love and have it feed you back. And and by doing so, you will be more fulfilled. I know I am. 
when I read a great book, like rereading Easy Riders, Raging Bulls that I quoted from today and have in, in the past, or I, or I get my Legion of Superheroes run from the late 70s by, by Mike Grell or, or my X-Men, Dave Cockrum, John Byrne, Paul Smith era. Oh, just brings me back, inspires me. It inspires me and it feeds my soul. And not going to lie, I'm going to do it with a cupcake. I'm going to do it with a bag of Cheetos, Doritos, uh, Lay's, uh, uh, maybe, maybe a turkey sandwich, maybe a hamburger, maybe a chicken sandwich, maybe something from Popeye's. Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm, I, it, there's a time for junk food, people. You know it. I know it. I'm already hungry. I need to go get a slice of pizza. Take care of yourself. We're uh, slowly turning things around. I really believe it. Better days ahead. Uh, take care of yourself. Put yourself uh, in a position to have some fun, laugh with your family, your friends, your kids. And uh, that is my wish for you. I am rooting for you at all times. You guys, swing on back by because I'm going to be here. I'll be waiting for you. And we most certainly, absolutely, inevitably, will talk again real soon. 